0: As we come to the end of our series on spiritual leadership, our Truth Encounter study leader, Dave Wurtzen, provides an exposure to biblical teaching on one of the more disputed areas of the Christian life in the church today, temperance. I kind of approach today with fear and trembling. We've been talking about leadership and what our theme is. We're talking about Christ-like leadership. And we started out by talking to you about the fact that God, when he talks about leaders, doesn't just look for great, charismatic, gifted leaders. We tend to think of leaders as being big, tall guys like John Wayne with booming voices and the ability to to really motivate people and grab a hold of people. When we think of leadership, we usually think in terms of the great, charismatic, gifted leader. When God looks at leadership, he doesn't just look for human ability, the person that looks like a Hollywood movie star that will be great in the media. The Lord looks... For character, What I want you to do is I want you to focus on the character that the Lord wants to begin to cultivate in your life. Every one of you, if you're going to develop in leadership, you need to be someone who doesn't just get emotionally involved with things and then just get all hog and all excited and going full blast without really being temperate and thinking things through And that leads us to what I want to talk to you about today. I want you to open your Bibles to 1 Timothy chapter 3. Usually I'm really excited about what I have to teach you about. I usually am looking forward to it all week. But to be honest with you, it's with fear and trepidation that I talk to you because there is an incredible potential for misunderstanding. And it would be one of these issues that as a pastor teacher it would be a lot easier if I just kind of skipped over it. But I can't do it because it's one of the character traits That Paul says needs to be part of spiritual leadership. And I think I can do several things by teaching you on this subject. I can illustrate, first of all, something that I believe that every spiritual leader needs to be able to do. They need to look at the entire counsel of God. They need to be able to begin at the book of Genesis and listen to God in Genesis. But they need to keep listening all the way through to Revelation so that there's not misunderstanding. And the subject that I'm going to talk to you about today is filled with misunderstanding. And there's all different kinds of opinion. There is all different kinds of opinion about the subject I want to talk about. And you'll find it in 1 Timothy 3, verse 3. Paul says that spiritual leaders need to be not given, and the Greek text has literally, not given to much wine. Your NIV translates it, not given to drunkenness. What I want to talk to you about today is this. I want to talk to you, first of all, about this stuff right here. Now, as soon as you get out one of these bottles, this rum, you introduce tremendous, powerful argumentations. First of all, most of you in this audience today are Americans, so that you have a whole history in your country that's all involved with this stuff. In fact, back in the colonial days, you might not have realized it, but down in, in Jamaica... They made sugarcane. From the sugarcane, they made molasses. They brought the molasses up to the colonial America. In colonial America, they were growing grain very well. They mixed the molasses and the grain together and they came up with this stuff rum. And that supported the British Empire. You don't realize it, but there was a day in Parliament where the choice was between keeping Jamaica and losing all the 13 colonies or keeping the 13 colonies and losing Jamaica, and the vote in in the parliament was, man, we can't lose Little Island of Jamaica because of the rum trade, okay? So that was in our early history. And by the way, in colonial America, rum was consumed quite heartily among all the colonists, almost all the colonists. But then you move a little bit farther and you move up into some of the, my own parents' upbringing. Uh, when they came into the Lord Jesus Christ, they were, came out of a heritage that right after the Civil War, our country divided over the issue of slavery, we fought a war, 600,000 soldiers died. And then in about 1865, the, the, the movement that moved to abolish slavery set their guns on another target. And from 1866 until 1920, this whole political movement created a movement called Prohibition. And churches like ours and people like us became very involved in getting demon rum out of our cities, out of our towns, off our streets. In other words, what I'm saying is this in our history is a very powerful issue. Demon rum is the leading drug abuse problem in the United States. If you take heroin abuse, marijuana abuse, you add all of the drugs together, LSD. If you add all the problems with drugs and just stick it all together and lump it and sum it, it doesn't begin to touch what alcohol does in a given year in our culture. This is also a very personal issue for me because we lost a member of our family because of this stuff. He was a big strapping guy that pressed about 250 pounds, but he couldn't handle a car going 50 miles an hour by dri- driven by a drunk. who slammed into my other brother-in-law's car when they were just coming home from sleigh riding, and my 15-year-old brother was in heaven. And I went to a funeral because of this stuff. So as we begin talking today, I want you to know that if you have emotions about this, I have emotions about it, and they're very strong. But what I want to do is I want to begin in the word of God today. And I want, you to, I want to talk to you about this stuff because this is an incredible stuff. You see, if you if you take all of this and pop it down and you get out of your mind and become drunk, it does some really weird things to you. But I want to talk to you about something else. I have something else in my bag here. If I take out this little bottle here, I can only find a little one because I wanted to be accurate. But I read the label on this. This is cough syrup. How many of you have taken cough syrup over the last few weeks or so, okay? Almost all of you have. If you're like me, it's been going all over the place. But I looked at the label, you know what's in this stuff? 5% ethanol, okay? So there's alcohol in the cough syrup. And how many of you, have, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand, but how many of you have taken NyQuil the last few, day, few days or so? Or, in fact, some of you take NyQuil almost every night. That's how you kind of make yourself get easy before you go to sleep. Well, just look at your NyQuil and see how much of the ethanol content there is, okay? So what it shows us is this stuff can be a demon, demon rum. It can also be, in medicine, used as a solvent, and it becomes a healing property. To make this incredible stuff even more complicated, we not only drink it in small quantities of medicine, but we also splash it on ourselves, and here's rubbing alcohol. So, if, for example, when I was a kid and pa- my parents couldn't find, you know, it's the antiseptic, my mom would dump this stuff on my open cuts, much to my chagrin, but medically it did work. It is. Alcohol is a pretty good antiseptic. And if you got tired muscles, if you've been running track like Josh was all yesterday, you rub this stuff on your muscles and it helps you to feel a little bit better. So that shows you this is an incredible substance. Ethanol, two carbons, a bunch of uh, hydrogens, some an OH group added up, some of my old chemistry coming out. If you use one carbon group, it's, it, it'll kill you just like that. It's methane gas, and it'll kill you. If you add another carbon group, it becomes propanol. That'll kill you just like that. You get it in between, and it becomes an amazing substance that has had tremendous impact upon our culture. Now, what I want to do today... I want to try to open up to the book of Genesis. I'm going to finish, you know, trying to go through the Bible. I'm going to try to give you a viewpoint about what the Bible teaches about alcohol. And I want you to listen to me because it's very easy to misunderstand. Just to show you what you need to do today. You see, in order to understand somebody, you need to first of all sit back, try to set aside your own prejudices, and listen. Listen. Because it's very hard to understand somebody. In fact, when we were praying, Mary prayed these words in her prayer. Dear Lord, help us to worship ourselves today in our singing. And I stopped her and said, Mary, you've got to be kidding. Man, you, you, you want to have us have idolatry today? Are you praying that we would worship ourselves? We're supposed to worship God. We're supposed to worship in song. We're, supposed to, we're not supposed to worship ourselves. Now, did I interrupt Mary like that? No. Because Mary didn't mean, when she prayed, Dear Lord, help us to worship ourselves. She wasn't saying, Lord, help us to focus on ourselves. She was saying, as we play the piano, and as we pluck on the guitar, and as we sing, help us not to to just do it mechanically and just as a routine, but help us to worship ourselves as we do these things and focus on the Lord. But it's the same words in English. Worshiping ourselves can mean a focus on yourself, but I know Mary, and I know what her intent was. I know the context of her conversation with the Lord. She wasn't praying at all that we would worship ourselves and focus on ourselves, but she was praying that we would ourselves enter in to the act of worshiping God. But you see how, how difficult it is to understand? How many of you have ever been in a conversation with somebody and you're talking back and forth and about a week later you, they, you heard them say something and you said, that's not what I meant. How many of you ever said that? Well, welcome to the world of communication and trying to understand something. And what you need to understand is the same thing is true as you read the Bible. You can use the Bible to prove anything you want to prove. In fact, the Bible has been used in the history of our country to prove all kinds of perverted, twisted things. And what happens is that people take a verse here and a verse there and a verse there and they don't listen carefully to what God is trying to get across in the whole counsel of his word. And this morning, you're going to have to discipline yourselves because you need to listen carefully. And what I'm going to do is I'm going to begin by beginning with the very, which is a good place to begin. I want you to turn, first of all, to Genesis chapter 9. We want to look at the very first time in the Bible that we have wine mentioned. And it is is in a very controversial story. Genesis chapter 9. Noah has just made it safely through the flood, which is an incredible thing. The Lord in Genesis chapter 6 looked down from heaven and saw that the thoughts and intents of man's heart was only evil continually. But there was one man who found grace in the eyes of the Lord. Look at Genesis chapter 9. And this man makes it through the flood. He has three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And they are given a command that they are now supposed to go out and fill the earth, replenish the earth. But you know what? Incredibly, as they begin to do that, Noah in verse 10, uh, verse 18, I mean, verse 18 says this. Now the sons of Noah who came out of the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Ham was the father of Canaan. These were the three sons of Noah, and from them came the people who scattered over all the earth. So all of you are my relatives. You're all ultimately from either Shem, Ham, or Japheth, okay? Now notice the next verse. Noah, a man of the soil, he was a farmer, would have fit in well, you know, down among the the farmers and the beautiful fields. Noah was a man of the field. And he proceeded to plant a vineyard. My son Jonathan over in Israel, living on a kibbutz, just spent a month, his first month in Israel, learning how to prune the vines. Because even today in Israel, up there on the way to Jerusalem, there's beautiful vineyards. It's kind of like the San Francisco area, a little bit north of San Francisco in California, the vineyard area. And that's the way Israel is in some of the sections. And and Noah was a man who planted a vineyard. Now notice what happened in verse 21. When he drank some of its wine, he became drunk. And he lay uncovered inside his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw his father's nakedness and told his two brothers outside. But Shem and Japheth took a garment and laid it across their shoulders. And then they walked in backward and covered their father's nakedness. Their faces were turned the other way so that they would not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and found out what his youngest son had done to him... He said, Cursed be Canaan, the lowest of slaves will he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, may Canaan be the slave of Shem. May God extend the territory of Japheth, and may Japheth live in the tents of Shem, and may Canaan be his servant. And after the flood, Noah lived 350 years, and altogether, Noah lived 950 years, and then he died. Now, this guy was several hundred years of age, and the first thing I want you to notice about this text is you would expect someone after living that long to have their life together and to be relatively wise and sober in the way that they, that they do things. But have you noticed? And it's something that every one of you need to realize. Here was the one man who made it through the flood with his family. And yet, hundreds of years of age, back in the years where they lived a lot longer than we do, before the genetic things got confused and the radiation levels changed and several other things, back in the day when they lived several hundred years, Noah, near the end of his life, still got smashed on this stuff. So the very first thing I want you to realize is, from the text, this is the very first time that wine is introduced in the Bible. And when God introduces something the very first time and a whole family goes to smithereens, God is trying to tell us something and saying, watch out, this stuff is dangerous. And so the very first time it's introduced in the Bible, we have a very godly man, a very righteous man near the end of his life that gets smashed out of his gourd takes off his clothes, which in our culture would be bad enough, but in a Semitic culture, a Jewish culture, an Old Testament culture, that was a, a very perverted evil thing to do. Kind of going back in the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, when man was exposed as a sinner, it says they saw their nakedness and they tried to cover themselves. And part of the reason why we cover ourselves is the fact that sin has caused the image of God within us to be perverted and twisted, not totally eliminated, but hurt. And what that means is that our sin makes us afraid of exposure. And someone who just blatantly takes off their clothes, like a Hollywood movie actress or actor, is saying, "You, I'm not ashamed, I don't have any sin, I'll expose myself to anybody. And what you'll find if you'll study the lives of that kind of a situation, that kind of a setting, it almost always leads to hurt in relationships. Because it's only in the garden of your marriage, only in the, in the return to Eden that the Lord provides through monogamous marriage, that the Lord can begin to lower those shame levels again. And the Lord can help you to be able to trust somebody enough that you can be vulnerable and naked to them. And all that's involved in this Jewish-Semitic way of thinking about nakedness. If you were Greeks, they would go out running naked. If you went to the gymnasium, they would work out naked. Greeks didn't have any feeling about the nakedness of the human body. But the Jews did. And you need to understand this culturally, first of all. Noah, by exposing himself drunk in the the tent in his culture, whatever was going on there, it was was a twisted, kind of a dirty thing to do. Now what did Ham do? Ham went in there, came out and started joking with his brothers about it. And the Bible is very realistic. When men get together, and they start talking, I'm sure. And even women do this as well, especially when they get among themselves. And I'm sure this week in the marketplace, some of you have been involved and you've listened in and you've suddenly heard guys start to talk dirty. That's what, Shem, what's what Ham is trying to do with Shem and Japheth. He's laughing. The, the, the Hebrew text of the idea of, you know, look what our father has done. Man, he's acting like a jerk. And look at him. And he starts making in his tent. And they and. Ham starts to make dirty talk about it. Shem and Japheth remember that they need to honor their father. The commandment of Moses hasn't even been given yet. But it's part of, human, a part of the gift of the image of God in us that we know that you shouldn't shame your father. So Shem and Japheth go in backwards and they throw a cloak over the shame of their father and they don't look at it. So they maintain their respect respect their father even in this horrible situation where he's acting like such an idiot. As a result of this, when Noah wakes up he wasn't totally plastered out of his gourd. He did kind of remember what happened. And some of you can testify about when you've been drunk in the past, maybe in your unconverted days that you kind of remember sometimes what happened. And he blasts Canaan. Now some of you say, well Dave, I thought Ham was the one that did this. Why did did he blast Canaan, Ham's son, because the curse against Canaan was the reality that the the immorality that was in Ham when he joked with his brothers became centralized in the descendants through the line of Canaan. And I don't want to get into this today, but it's very important as I study this text and I can illustrate something to you. This text that I just read is what was used in the Old South to justify slavery. They said that there's a curse against Ham. And Ham, if you look later in the text, produces Mitzrayim, the Egyptians. It produces Put, which is part of the other uh, African nations. And the idea in the Old South was the Bible says that because of this curse, they all need to be slaves. And I want you to see how important it is to read the Bible accurately. The curse was not against Ham. The curse was against Canaan because it was in Canaan that the immorality and the scoffing and the ridicule against legitimate authority became manifested. And by the time of Moses and Joshua, those seven nations that, that came from Canaan were filled with radical immorality and radical drunkenness and radical intoxication and radical sin. So that the divine surgeon of all of heaven says we're going to have to cut them off to save the human race and also to preserve his people. So Genesis 9 is not a curse against black people. It's a curse against immorality. It's a curse against disrespect of parents. It's a curse against that kind of sinful, twisted, perverted attitude. It has nothing to do with racial relationships as far as color is concerned. And that's why it's so important for us. It's why we carefully study the text of God's word. Because a a twist of that text has produced untold agony in the history of of many very precious brothers and sisters in the body of Christ. But you say, well, Dave, what is God trying to teach us? I think he's trying to warn us. He's saying, watch out. This stuff right here, even if you're a mature believer, you're a godly believer, even if you lived a long life of goodness, it's dangerous. And it can take even a good man down. And when he drinks too much of this stuff, he, becomes, he does shameful things. He does hurtful things. And when he does that, it tears his family apart. Those are obvious lessons from this first exposure to wine. Now, the Old Testament goes on and talks more to us about some connections between drunkenness and what it produces in life. And I want, to, I want to show you, I want to go through several scriptures and show you some connections that the, young, the children here and some of the adults and some of you that are older need to really get into your noggin. The first connection is, if you drink too much of this stuff, you're probably going to get in fights. Turn to Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1. I want to talk to you about the alcohol brawling connection. In, in Proverbs chapter 20, verse 1, Solomon, who knew what he was talking about, Shared with us about what drunkenness produces in a life of someone that becomes trolled by it. Look what it says in verse one of Proverbs chapter twenty: Wine is a mocker, and beer is a brawler. Whoever is led astray by them is not wise. Now, what is he saying? He's saying when you start to drink too much wine, you start to get sarcastic. Some people have bad drunks, and when they drink too much, they begin their tongue gets loose. And they begin to make accusations against people. And that leads to the second part. When they drink a little too much of this stuff, they say some things, and then somebody else is drunk a little bit too much, and the inhibitions have been lowered. Some people have mean drunks. They have not only sarcastic drunks, but they have mean drunks, and they want to fight. And Proverbs is saying, that's a connection that all of you need to know. There's a guy that I've known in the past that went clubbing one night, was having a good time, began to drink, you know. Began to do the Texas thing, you know, pumping him down and being the big man. The guy that he was with started doing the same thing. He goes out into the street. A guy was angry, pulled out a pistol, shot the guy. The guy hasn't walked since. You see, this connection is really true. And as mom and dad, you need to dad, you need to be talking to your, mom, your kids about the connection between drunkenness and brawling and fights and what it can lead to. And so the Proverbs is very realistic, very open about teaching about the drunkenness, fighting, brawling connection. Now, there's another another one that's not quite so obvious. Look at the next one here. I want you to turn to Proverbs chapter 21, verse 17, just over one chapter. In Proverbs 21, 17, we read this. He who loves pleasure will become poor. Well, that's a hard verse for us to read because almost all of our life is geared on a man. We're supposed to love pleasure. We're supposed to live for the luxuries of life, and we're supposed to be able to drive you know, the biggest cars and live in the fanciest houses and have the nicest clothes. And who doesn't want to be part of the party set? Doesn't want to be part of the set that can fly all over the place? Well, notice what Proverbs says. He who loves pleasure will become poor. Whoever loves wine and oil will never be rich. And this is a connection between alcoholism and economic slavery. You see, in the ancient world, to have lots of wine and lots of olive oil was like saying that you had a lot of money in the bank, and it meant that you could not kind of remember the story that Jesus told about the rich farmer that says, "I'm going to, I'm going to tear down my old barns and build bigger barns. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die." It's all that kind of a scene. It's that life. I'm now going to focus just on luxury. And wine and going to the parties and being, you know, being able to taste, you know, go from one winery to the next and taste the finest wines and all that kind of stuff. Being part of that luxurious life is what this person lives for. It becomes the idol of their life. And what it's saying is that as you start to do that, and every one of you, as you start climbing the ladders of success, you see almost everybody starts out doing the simple things, the hard things caring about their job, caring about the people they're working for. But as you begin to be successful, you begin to feel that you deserve some things. And, and, and you deserve, you know, to be able to have a little ease on the side. And it's easy to begin for alcohol to become part of that little ease on the side. And what starts to happen is you start partying, you start going out with a group of friends that run with that stuff. And it's awfully easy for that to get a hold of your life And you start doing it as the meaning of your life. And you start drinking to be able to have meaning in life. And that will produce alcoholic. That will produce ruin in your life every time. All your hard work and all you produce will start to slip through your hands. And Proverbs is saying that will happen. Ernest Hemingway was probably one of America's greatest stories. I'm just finishing Farewell to Arms because I try to read different classical writers because it's great to see the word pictures they use and the skillful the way they use language. He wrote the classic study on war protests after World War I. And he described the story of, of a story of an American on the Italian front, which is very much similar to his life, and falling in love. And he, and he gets a girl pregnant. And they go to Switzerland and live an ideal existence. And time and time again, Ernest Hemingway talks about sampling the different alcoholic beverages of Switzerland. And he talks about going to one fancy inn and, and one little cute inn after another up in the mountains. And almost every, every time they turn around, they're, they're having another form of this stuff. Drinking. The tragedy is that the story ends in death and he loses his wife. She wasn't his wife. He never got around to marrying her. He never had time. She died. Ernest Hemingway himself, you say, well, Dave, that's just a story. Ernest Hemingway himself, after hunting in Africa, and I've often related to you this story because it's such, a, it's such a, a prime example. Here's a guy that was one of America's greatest writers. He won the Nobel Prize of Literature. Incredible writer. Incredible skill. Incredible talent. 61 years of age, sticks a gun barrel in his mouth and blows his head off. Why? Because you can't just live for pleasure. You can't let your life become this bottle. You can't just go from day to day trying to sample the drinks. Even that life of luxury, travel, having a good time. It doesn't give you meaning. And the word of God loves you enough. God, your Father in heaven, loves you enough that he tells you, he tells our little one, know this connection. Know this connection. It's not just because the Baptists say, no, no, no. It's not because the Methodists say, well, maybe, maybe, maybe. You know. It's not a denominational thing. You need to learn, you need to think clearly about the reality of this stuff. Third connection I want you to look at. A connection between brawling and drunkenness. A connection between injustice and drunkenness. Look at the next one. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. Turn to one of the prophets. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20. With the O.J. Simpson trial, all of us are concerned about justice in the courts. There's been a lot of talk about the media influence and how it can easily pervert the justice and it can pervert the lawyers and the judges that are involved. But there's a connection that Isaiah brings out that you might not have thought about that much, but it's very, very important. If you look at Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20, it says this, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil. I'm sure all of you have thought of this verse in our society lately. Woe to those, halt to those. The idea of woe is like on a horse. Woe. It also means there's going to be the judgment of God that comes down Upon these, where you have a divine halt. Halt to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. What are those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight? He's talking about the, you know, to bring it into modern thinking, he's talking about some people that have been trained in the prestigious Ivy League universities. They are cunning, they are brilliant, they are successful. They have blasted ahead in their career. And morality isn't that important. They can set their own morality. They can decide what's right for themselves. And they're living their life, living this productive, pleasure-filled, successful American dream. That's the kind of person Isaiah is thinking about in the Old Testament context. Notice what he says in verse 22. What are those who are heroes at drinking wine? You ever had a friend brag? Man, I know the exquisite wines. I know all the right ones. And, and man, I can, I can drink it with the best of them. It says, what are those who are champions at mixing drinks? In our society down here in Texas, you know, it's a guy that can over, you know, go over down in the Fort Worth stockyards, and he can take a whole pitcher and just drink the whole pitcher down at one pop. You know, Just let it just drain down into his stomach. One thing. He's a man's man. He's a real cowboy. That's what the writer is talking about. He's talking about men that brag about their ability to be able to hold their drink and they're champions at doing this. But notice what it says in the next verse, and here's the connection. Who acquit the guilty for a bribe and deny justice to the innocent. You see what happened? You had a group of elites. You see elites begin to control the government of a land. Lawyers in our nation have a great influence upon justice. Now we all like lawyer jokes. We all like to, to cut down the lawyers right now. But you need to realize that, that, that you need to look at your lawyers. You need to look at your judges. And you need to analyze what's happening in the land. All that the lawyers and justices and the judges reflect is the value system of much of the land. And what Isaiah was doing in his day, he looked at the judges and the princes. They had a different legal system. But he looked at those that were responsible for justice in the courts. And what he saw them doing was living a life of luxury, a life of prestige, A life of material prosperity. And he saw them living a life of committed to drink. They liked to drink. And what did he say happened? When they went into the courtroom, when they went into the courtroom, a poor widow came in. And this widow needed the court to hold off the powerful elements against her. The court needed to be a place of neutrality... ...that would keep the power structures of society... ...from just mowing over this this girl, this woman. And what Isaiah sees is... ...the big bucks come through... ...and bribes are given... ...and the judge decides against the widow. And what the Lord God is saying through his prophet Isaiah... ...when that starts to happen again... ...and again and again in a culture... ...when people walk into a court... ...and big bucks win... God says alcohol is probably involved. you know why? Because when you work all day long, it takes a lot of energy. And if you start to live to be able to get home and drink at night, you know what starts to happen? The next day when you get up, your moral resolve has started to be whittled away. It's softened. It's, it's just a lot easier to let things go. You see, it takes tremendous fortitude to stand for the Right? It takes tremendous fortitude for you to go out into business this week. For you to go out into your jobs, is working on newspapers, you know, working as doctors, working as lawyers, working in the cement companies that we have, and the steel plants that we have, and just school teachers, everything. It takes tremendous resolve to go out there and be a godly person that lives for the right. And what Isaiah is telling us is that when you begin to be a champion at drinking, you won't be a champion for the right because it perverts your thinking. In fact, you know what happens to to alcohol in your brain? Eventually, alcohol destroys your mind's ability. When you're given to drunkenness, it destroys your mind's ability to determine what really happened from what's just in your imagination. And if you think that isn't true, I have had people in my office that have wrestled with this thing called alcoholic abuse for years. They don't know, and I don't know, when their real life starts... And their pretend life starts. And where it ends. It's all confused. And that's why they're such effective liars. Because they they, they reach a point where that ability in your mind. Like when you lie, almost all of you that are not controlled by alcohol. When you lie, you know you lie. So I can catch you. It comes out in your eyes. and, And you eventually mess up your story so badly. And you feel so badly. You usually come clean. But an alcoholic, when they're really into it, man, they can lie just straight across. Because it's all real to them. Because they've lost that ability. They're, in, they're out of touch with reality. And people that are out of touch with reality eventually get mowed down by reality. And in the courtroom, there's no room for that. And so we need to be very, very careful about realizing, man, when you're in positions of influence, positions of leadership, you need to be sharp. You need to defend, stand for what's right and defend the cause of the innocent. You won't do it. If alcohol is beginning to control your life. You say, well, Dave, you've been hard on the lawyers. What about you guys as religionists? Let's look at one more connection here. And then we'll look at a picture the Old Testament gives us of of what happens when we get drunk. Turn to Isaiah chapter 28, verses 7 through 8. Because here is another connection. Alcoholism and drunkenness and false religious leadership. You say, Dave, you've been hard on lawyers. What about preachers? Preachers can easily be given to alcoholism. In Isaiah chapter 28, the prophet Isaiah talks about some of the ancient people in Israel that were supposed to be the teachers of God's word, but look what they're doing. Look at verse 7 of Isaiah chapter 28. And these also stagger from wine and reel from beer. You got the picture, you see a guy you know, trying to walk a straight line, put one toe, you know, one heel in front of the, of the other toe and walk a straight line. They're reeling and staggering. But notice what it says. Who is doing it? Priests and prophets stagger from beer. They are befuddled with wine. They reel from beer. They stagger when seeing visions. They stumble when rendering decisions. All the tables are covered with vomit. And there's not a spot without filth. Isn't that an ugly picture? These are the, these are the religious leaders that are supposed to be going from city to city, teaching God's people the word of God. Instead, they're drunk as skunks and they're vomiting, vomiting all over the temple. Now that's a bad scene. There's always a connection. As you begin to get involved in false religious teaching, you'll start to get involved in the abuse of alcohol. And you'll have some kind of substance abuse that starts to generate the visions and the, the weird per- perceptions about what God is doing. And Isaiah the prophet says that's not a new thing that was just introduced in the 60s. The prophet Isaiah says, man, it's been going on for centuries. So beware of the alcohol drunkenness and false religious leadership connection. I want you to look at kind of a a portrait of what happens when we get drunk. There's some humor in it, but there's also some very deep sadness in it. Turn to uh, Proverbs chapter 23. Turn back to Proverbs chapter 23, and let's look at kind of Proverbs um, brief. It's like a snapshot of what happens when you get controlled by drunkenness. And it tells us why the Lord God, through the Apostle Paul, told us that a leader can't be given to much wine. Look at Proverbs chapter 23 and let's pick it up with um, it'll be um, verse 29, verse 29, Proverbs 23, 29. Who has woe? Who has sorrow? Who has strife? Who has complaints? That's what we've been learning about. Remember that the brawling alcohol, drunkenness connection? Who has needless bruises? Who has bloodshed? Eyes? Now, how many of you want to have that as a lifestyle? You know, how many of you want to have sorrow, strife, complaints, needless bruises, and bloodshot, you know, and red bloodshot eyes? Now, that's not a very good picture. Notice who it is. Those who linger over the wine, who go to sample bowls of mixed wine. Reminds me when Mary and I were in Waikiki several years ago at a banking convention. We weren't bankers, but we were walking down Waikiki Beach, and it looked like half the financial markets of the United States all the big bank leaders were there. And, and they were so soused, you could just go into the parties. You could walk off the beach and just go from one hotel party part to the next. They didn't know who was there and, and who wasn't. So Mary and I just went from one hotel to the next, just going to these different parties. And man, it was just flowing. The, the idea of having, they had big, you know, just, they had tables, just as far, almost as far as the eye could see, filled with stuff. And it was all free. Isn't that great to know that, man? The, your banking is controlled. Not that all of them are like that, but that's what what's going on. That's the picture that's here. In other words, you go to Hawaii and you have a great big party and you're sampling all the drinks. You're sampling all that's going on. It says now, notice what it says: those who linger over wine, who go to sample bowls of mixed wine, and then it warns us. And as parents, we need to teach our kids about the dangers. Don't gate at the wine when it's red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. You see, there is something really scintillating about, you know, being 18 years of age and and finally being away from mom and dad and and they think you're 21 and and you go to a fancy party and and it's just exquisite champagne and and it looks so perfect in the glass and all that. That's what's going on. That's what the writer is describing. And its parents, you need to talk to your kids about this. Don't just say, don't drink because I said so or because that's the law. You need to get in there for their jugular and talk about why and wherefore and what it produces. And notice what the Proverbs say. They say this is what happens. Why shouldn't you do that? I can just hear a young teenager saying, well, why, Dad? You know, why don't, why don't you want me to look at the wine when it's red? Why don't you want, why don't you want me to, to love that, you know, when it goes down my throat and hits my stomach and produces that tremendous burning sensation that, that makes me feel so good and makes me feel a little bit numb in the back of my head? Why don't you want me to have that? The writer says this. It says your eyes will see in the end it bites like a snake and it poisons like a viper. Notice how he changes imagery. You go from a big party, now you've got this ugly image of being bitten by a viper. It says your eyes will see strange sights and your mind will imagine confusing things. You'll be like one sleeping on the high seas, lying on top of the rigging. They hit me, you will say, but I'm not hurt. They beat me, but I don't feel it. When will I wake up so I can find another drink? You see what happens when you get drunk? You're like you're on the top of a, the mask of a ship. It's like you're about 100 feet up in the air on this little pole in an ancient seagoing vessel. There's a terrible storm at sea, and the, ski, the sea is going up 15 and 20 feet at a pop. And you're up there at the top of the mast. Your life is in peril, and you don't even know it. You don't even know it. How many of you have ever watched the Green Bay Packers play in Milwaukee? And how many of you have ever seen the guys in the middle of the winter, 20 below zero, without any shirts on. And how many of you have said, how stupid could you get? You know, if you were just sit next to those guys, they don't think they're stupid at all. They think they're macho. They think it's really cool. And they really are cool. I mean, they've got their bodies so filled with antifreeze, man, it's, their, their body temperature is shooting the lower and lower and lower. Do you know what happens when your body temper get, temperature gets too low? The army just lost some precious soldiers in the, in the Everglades. The water was 52 degrees, not 20 below zero, just 52 degrees. And these guys walked in the swamps with their rifles up above their head, trying to reach their objective, and the army made a mistake. It's a tragic, tragic story, but they got hypothermia, and four macho, powerful young guys died. They just couldn't get them warm again. Guys lie, were lying on them and did artificial respiration. A whole bunch of guys just hugging these guys, trying to get warmth back into them. They were gone. So those guys in the football game think they're really being smart, but they could be gone. Could be too late. Their body gets too cold. But when you're drunk, you don't know your life is in terrible danger. And the proverb is very realistic. So we talk about all these connections. The brawling connection. We talk about the injustice connection. We talk about how it perverts religion. We talk about this foolishness that it creates. And notice that it ends by saying... Them, but ...as soon as they wake up, they're after another drink. That's the incredible thing. When you start to be controlled by it, you're right after it. So, what do we do? We end the message right here. This is where most of you stop. Which is where most preachers stop. So what we need to do is we need to just take the stuff... ...put it back in the bag... And we'll just outlaw it. That's what we did in the 20s. And that took care of the problem, didn't it? There's another part of the story, too. You see, if the evil is this stuff, if the evil is ethanol, and all that we need to do is to stamp out ethanol, just don't let chemists produce it anymore, don't let that process take place anymore, then everything will be fine. Then we'll deal with the evil that way. But you know what? If that's so, then God can never use wine. He can never use an alcoholic thing as a symbol of prosperity and blessing in the Bible because it's evil. If this stuff is intrinsically evil in itself, this stuff, ethanol, is evil in itself, then it can never be used as a symbol of blessing. And you see, I have presented to you, that's why you need to stay with me. Because I've just given you what the Bible teaches about drunkenness. It's not what the Bible teaches about wine. It's only half the story. Turn to Psalm 104. In Psalm 104, you have a celebration of God's good creation. And you have a celebration of the the brooks and the streams and the beautiful sky and the animals that God has made. And right in the middle of Psalm 104, we have an incredible verse. It says in verse 14 that God is the one. Psalm 104, verse 14. God is the one who makes the grass grow for the cattle. How many of you think that's a good thing, that God makes grass to grow for the cattle? If some of you have cattle, you're really thankful for it, okay? How many of you think that it's nice that God gave plants for man to cultivate? Some of you have started your garden. Isn't it it an enriching thing to be able to get out that Troy-built tiller and be able to get out there and and get get that garden ready to go? Boy, that's a good thing. The Lord made the ground to generate plants. It's a good thing. Bringing forth food from the earth. And then it says this, and wine that gladdens the heart of man. And oil to make his face shine and bread that sustains his heart. You said, Dave, you just told us in Proverbs that wine and oil were a bad thing. No, I didn't. I said, worshiping them were a bad thing. When they control your life, it becomes a bad thing. When they become obsessive, they become a bad thing. But Psalm 104 tells us that wine is part of God's good creation that gladdens our heart. You say, Dave, what are you talking about? If you were Jewish people today, I would have no trouble getting this across to you. I had a few Italians. I might have a few this morning. If you're Italian, I might be able to get it across to you a little bit. In the first service, I had several Italians. But I want you to listen to this. When I was in Israel, they had what they call a Shabbat celebration. Every Friday night, ladies, your husband has to help you. Because by Friday night at 6 o'clock, all the food has to be ready. All the floors have to be vacuumed. Everything has to be cleaned. And from 6 o'clock on Friday night until 6 o'clock Saturday evening, you cannot touch a broom. You cannot turn on a fire. You can't touch anything and do any work. And all the ladies said, amen. Because what does your family do? The family stops. They Shabbat. In Hebrew, that means to cease, to stop. And everybody has to rest. When I was in Israel, one of the times I had a precious privilege of having a Shabbat meal. And in that Sabbath meal, you begin like this. A father takes a loaf of bread. You're gathered around a circular table, we were. Takes a loaf of bread, and he takes that bread, and he says, thanks to Yahweh. And In fact, in Hebrew, they say, thanks to Adonai, because they never used the tetragrammaton, Yahweh. So thanks to Adonai, thanks to Elohim for the gift of the grain. And he described in his beautiful Hebrew, he described thanks for the seed, thanks for the rain, thanks for the, the production of crop, thanks for the harvest, thanks for the flower, thanks for the bread that sustains our life. And, he, and he, he says this beautiful prayer in Hebrew. And he breaks some of the bread and he eats it and he passes it around the table. And you all say, thanks be to God, thank God. Then he takes a glass of wine. In Israel culture, the vineyard is very important. And he takes the, a wine glass. And he says, Lord, thank you for the gift of the grape. Thank you for the gift of the vineyard. Thank you for what brings gladness to our heart. And he takes a little sip and he passes it around the table. A lot like our communion service. In fact, that's the roots of our communion service. The Passover is like a special dedicatory Sabbath. A part of the worship system of old Israel. Now, I want to tell you something. That's the feel of Psalm 104. And if this stuff is intrinsically evil, and as I sit around that table, then what do I do? When it comes to me, I just pat to the next person. If it's intrinsically evil, I must do that because if I were to drink it, in, even in that setting, if it's intrinsically wrong, then it's wrong. But you know what? I, I had to sit. You know why? Because of Psalm 104. You see, there wasn't abuse in that context. There wasn't anyone getting drunk in that context. You're talking about a little sip. In fact, I was raised in Plymouth Brethren circles where we used real wine in our communion services. It was a good thing because we had a common cup. Can you imagine passing you know, coals all around the congregation? And at least the alcohol, because it is a good antiseptic, kills a little something, although I think we passed everything to everyone else. In fact, I remember in New York City in the Lower East Side being a little storefront church, and the lady that took care of me when I was a kid, she lived in our home. She was from the Catskill Mountains, and she lived with us. And I used to watch her every Sunday morning when we had communion. She'd Because in our regular Plymouth Brethren Church, we used grape juice. And we went to this Lower East Side church, and I often noticed that this lady that lived with us would take a great big swallow of grape juice. I think she liked Welch's grape juice. Well, the, we were in this little storefront church. They passed the bread around. Then they passed the cup around. And it came to me first before it came to this lady that lived with us named Mary. And I took a little bit. Man, it was wine. And, man, I knew it right away. The little kid, it got in my mouth. You know, it's sour and it bites you and a little bit. And, man, I knew it wasn't grape juice. So I took just a little bit and swallowed it. And then I watched what was going to happen to her. Man, it came around to her. She took a big mouthful. And she went to swallow it. Man, it just started burning. And she just spit the whole thing out on the floor. And man, she prayed that no one was watching, but I was watching. (laughs) Now, we can laugh about that, but there's believers that use wine in the communion service. If it's intrinsically evil, if it's intrinsically evil, could you do that? No. That's why you need to listen to what we're saying. The evil is not in the thing. It's in the way that a person uses it. It's kind of like a kiss. You see... You say, well, man, kissing is what gets all of our young people in, problem, in trouble. That, that's the big issue in the United States, illegitimate pre- teenage pregnancy. And it starts with kissing. So what we need to do, is, you see, we need to outlaw kissing. It's all the kissing that goes on in the back seat of the car, and, and now it goes on in mom and dad's house when mom and dad are at home. What we need to do is to tell the kids that, that kissing is wrong, and it's evil, and don't ever do it, and we'll take care of this sexual immorality problem. Well, that's just not the way it is. Because that's, you know... What about kissing your your grandmother when you go to visit her on Thanksgiving? You know, what about a a big football player giving a kiss to the homecoming queen when he gives her a bunch of roses at the 50 yard line and he gives her a kiss on the cheek? What about a a bridegroom that that gives a great kiss to his bride right after they were married? What about Judas' kiss? You see, there's all different kinds of kisses. Some of them are evil, some of them are heinous. Some of them are beautiful and good. The evil's not in the act. The evil's not in the thing. It's in what a human being is doing. Are they expressing glory to God? Are they giving thanks to God? Are they being obedient to God? Or are they focusing on evil in themselves and getting what they're going to get out of it? Wine is very similar to that. The evil's not in the thing. It's in the way that it's used. And you need to know the difference. There's a difference between gathering together for a Shabbat meal around a table and a bunch of teenagers that just played a football game that, are, that just got about 12 cases of six-packs. And they're going to get blasted out of their gourd to prove that they're men. There's a difference there, friends. And your kids need to be taught the difference. And you need to know the difference. If you really want to protect your kids from, what, from, from evil, you tell them the truth. What I'm teaching you today is very difficult. It would be much easier, much simple for me just to be a strong authority figure. Just say, let's take this stuff, put it back in the bag, we'll never worry about it again. No! And I have Christian friends that do that. They just happen to be the group that have the biggest problem with alcoholism. Because there's this great big no. And then they start to experiment secretly and nobody will ever know. And they start to, to feel some of the goodness of it. And no one ever told them that there was anything good at all. And they could ever do anything good. And then they start to be controlled by it. And then they get, get sick. And it destroys their families. And a lot of things go wrong. You see, the truth is what sets us free. You say, Dave, well, how are we going to control this thing? You see, let me use one other thing before I talk about how we control it. And then we're going to be done. This, the final, I want you to see this. The easiest thing in the world for me to say to leaders... The easiest thing for me to say for you, to leader, is don't drink one drop of it. In fact, that's the upbringing that I had. That's the background that I'm from. And the easiest thing in the world for me to say is don't ever drink a drop of it. And it would be easy for me to teach it. The Bible teaches teetotalism. But you know, if the Bible's going to teach that, then all Paul had to do is, is say this. In 1 Timothy 3 that, I, 3 that I started out with today, he just needed to say this. Not given to any wine. In fact, I don't usually spring Greek on you, but I, I can drive home the fourth, what I want to teach you. All Paul had to say, if he wanted to make you Mormons and make you total teetotalers where you would never touch a drop of it, it was evil to have one drop. All I needed to say is, me oinon. That would be no, oinos means wine, me means no, may me oinon, no wine, no alcoholic drink. But he didn't. He said this, May par and par is a word that means going beyond, having too much, and that's why the NIV translates the phrase "not given to much wine" or "not given to drunkenness." You say, well, Dave, they drunk different stuff than we did. I've, I have close friends that teach, well, the Bible, when it talks about wine, it means grape juice or it means diluted alcohol that you'd have so much water and it, it would get to your kidneys before it got to your, you know, to your brain. If that's so, then let's translate the verse like this. Not given to much Welch's. Can you imagine in a list of writing to leaders, I want you all to be really careful not to make Welch's grape juice of really productive company. Come on. You don't need to study the ancient, what the classics did with their wine, to know there's a problem in the New Testament with alcoholic beverage. Wine could be abused. That's why Paul had to say, not given to much of it. And so what it shows us is that they were wrestling with the same thing we're wrestling with in our culture, and without getting debating about the percentages. What he's telling us is that a spiritual leader cannot be controlled by wine. He cannot drink too much. A spiritual leader should never be in a situation where someone that's in their congregation or one of their friends, an unbelieving friend, an unbeliever should never be able to see a leader drunk, out of control, too loose. That's what he's saying. Why? Because you can't trust a leader when he's out of control. A pilot, for example, in flying, you cannot drink for 24 hours before you fly. Why is that? Well, there's part of the reason is because when you get up higher in altitude, the alcohol affects you more. But it means, you see, when you're flying in a three-dimensional universe, all of your resources have to be totally focused because you're a leader. When Dale flies as a captain, he's responsible for, for those hundred people and more that are behind him. And he has to be quick and he has to be alert. He's a leader. He's responsible. And he can't be given... He can't be given to any beclouding influence. He has to be crystal clear in the way he thinks and quick. And that's what Paul is telling us. Not given to a beclouding influence. Not controlled by it. You say, well Dave, how are we going to control this thing? How are we going to do it? It's not by having a law that shalt never have a glass of wine. It's not by having no, another drive for prohibition as exciting as that might be. And politically it would be really an enervating experience. But all I produced in the twenties was great gang warfare in Chicago and a bootlegging all over Kentucky and and it didn't really influence the alcoholic problem in the United States that much until it was repealed in nineteen thirty three. Say, Dave, what is the answer? Ephesians chapter five, one of the most important verses in all the Bible that you need to get. Ephesians chapter five, verse eighteen, as we close, says this Don't get drunk on wine. Don't get drunk on wine. Drunkenness is not for God's children. You say, well, Dave, what am I going to fill my life with? He says this, don't get drunk with wine, but instead I want you to be filled with the Holy Spirit. I want you not to get drunk on this stuff. I don't want you, I don't want you to have to need this. You see, I don't want you to have to go through work and look forward to getting home at night so you can have that shot glass and drink up. You see, Dave, Dave, What's wrong? Your life is empty. When our life is empty, we fill it with stuff. And this is one of the things, one of the most powerful things that we try to fill it with. When you drink a little bit of this stuff, and then you drink a little bit more, you start to forget your hurt. You start to numb the emptiness. You start to numb the dullness in your soul. And it makes you feel good for a few minutes at a party. But it's a false spirit. It's a lying spirit. There's an alternative. Instead, you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Singing to one another and teaching one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. And I want you to see the connection between the filling of the Spirit and singing. Because one of the things that Satan has done, Satan has created an alternative world. Satan has created a world of fun and of excitement, of friendship, of of exciting nights and good friends and good talk and just real relaxed times. And he does it around this. He gets a bunch of unbelievers to live for Friday night. A bunch of young professionals up in North Dallas, you know, get through their jobs Friday night. And you go out and you go clubbing and you have a good time and you you sing and you dance and you have a blast. You have a good time. And church is the place where it's boring and everybody is lying to one another and they're hypocrites and they don't really talk about what's bothering them. And it becomes a place that little kids can grow up into... ...that's Dolesville, USA. And that's a lie of Satan... ...because what you have is... ...the exciting, exhilarating... ...singing world of unbelief... ...with the negative rules... ...prohibition... ...all the dullness of life with Christ. And that is the biggest lie... ...that anyone could ever tell you. Christ is the one that can make you sing and dance without anything artificial inside of you. But have the real thing, a heart that's filled with joy. I've had times with believing friends around the Lord where we have laughed so hard we ended up rolling on the floor. And I even had some unbelieving friends with us and say, man, what in the world did you guys have to drink? And we'd say, absolutely nothing. We're just free. We found the answer. We don't even have to have a headache in the morning because we can go to bed with a clear head and with a clear heart but with laughter in our soul because we've met the ultimate source or the one that at the marriage of King of Galilee put the celebration back into life. The answer is to be filled with the Holy Spirit, not controlled with wine. I want to make it really personal. Some of you say, well, Dave, man, I'm not controlled with wine. No, but what are you controlled by? You see, wine is just one of these substances that can be abused. You know what? There's lots of substances that can be abused. In my own life, wine's not a big problem. You say, Dave, why not? Because the last thing in the world, this stuff, alcohol does do something. When you're sick, the reason they put it in your cough syrup is when you're sick, you need to slow down a little bit and relax and be able to rest. And alcohol is something that slows your system down. That's why a pilot can't fly a plane with it in 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 his or her veins. It slows you down. The last thing in the world that I want in my life is to be slowed down. You see, I went through grad school wanting to get speeded up. I want to not have to sleep at night. I want to be able to keep driving. If you just watch me ride my bicycle, you'll know I want to keep going. So you know what I do? I drink caffeine. And I can just take a whole pot. Like going through university, I could take a whole pot and just drink the whole thing down at one shot. And, man, it would spin me, make my metabolism just go. And I could go on hardly any sleep, and I can make straight A's on exams. You know what that is? That's abuse little abuse, but it's abuse. So as I grew older, like I just went to get a physical. Dave Ferris says, hey David, your blood pressure is a little bit too high. I said, what are we going to do about it? No caffeine. Then you find out what controls your life. Now why do I do that? I just want to be real personal. Why do I do that? Because instead of saying, Lord, today you're going to give me the strength to do what I need to do to talk to the people at the church, to counsel people that need you, to visit people in the hospital, to write the books, to get the radio done, to be a friend to your leadership. I'm going to give you the strength to do today everything that I need you to do today. And I'll give you the strength to do it all. And when, it, when you run out of strength, I want you to relax. And then I'll let other people do it. Because you don't have to have anything artificial. You don't have to push You can just be yourself. That's what the filling of the Spirit does. It helps you just to be filled with Him. It's not that it's wrong. I'm not telling you it's wrong to drink coffee, just like I'm not telling you it's wrong to have one sip of wine. But it's wrong if you desperately have to have. Because then you're being controlled by that thing instead of being controlled by Him. And I covet every one of you to be controlled, not by any of this stuff, I want you to be controlled by the spirit of the living water that will refresh you forever and ever. If you're an alcoholic, the the percentages are that some of you are really wrestling with this problem. And I want you to know, you don't need to hide. You don't need to feel that you're in a church family that they ever found out that you wrestled with that problem, that you'd be out on your ear. Because I got news for you, we're all wrestling with stuff. And we all have histories, and we all have needs. And rather than you just having, just being able to go to Alcoholics Anonymous, as good as that might be, we don't want you to have to go outside. We want you to know that you have friends right here that are not going to condemn you. There's no reason to hide. You can find healing in the power of the living spirit of Christ to change you and to help you. And I want you to know that it's not the unpardonable sin so that you need to be just sneaking bottles out in trash cans and putting them in paper bags and sticking them in your clothes in your closet, there's help. There's deliverance. It doesn't have to mess up your family like it did the family of Noah. And I want all of you to... uh, The the reason I've talked to you is so important is if you have the spirit of Christ and the counsel of his word, then we can become a healing community and give strength to people that are wrestling with this horrible compulsion, and we can be ones that bring deliverance rather than those that create horrible guilt that will never bring them to a real deliverance. Be filled with the Spirit. Don't be drunk with wine. For more information on materials available through Truth Encounter, please write to us at Truth Encounter, Box 580, Midlothian, Texas, 76065. Or you can contact us on the web at www.truthencounter.com. Our telephone number is 1-888-668-7884.